Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. This episode of the Narrators was recorded on February 21st, 2013 at the Deer Pile in Denver. The theme of the evening was rock shows and record stores. This next guy, I'm so excited he got to finally do the show. Uh, he's a veteran stand-up comedian on the Denver comedy scene, as well as a veterinarian who's appeared on Animal Planet's Emergency Vets. One of like the kindest, gentlest dudes I've ever met, but he used to be a bouncer uh, for rock shows. And I've heard other people tell me his stories, which are amazing, so I'm so excited to hear him firsthand. Please welcome Dr. Kevin Fitzgerald. <laughs> I'm not a storyteller, but I have some stories. I'm looking at you. You're out on a school night. Look at you. Look at you. Look at you. I'm old and you're young. I look like Gandalf to you. I grew up here, right here, a few blocks from here. I grew up in Denver. I'm 61 of your puny earth years. And I raised bees. Honey is perfect food. It's manufactured by insects, you know, and ra but raised by nature. I, I boxed at the 20th Street gym as a child. I'm Irish, and my, my parents were immigrants, and my uncle was the, the, the boxing coach at Tommy Dugan at 20th Street. So we all fought. And in 1968, Barry Fay and, and Bill Graham came and saw my brothers and I fight and put us on the road with bands to do security because he said he couldn't send a Jew to hire Irish cops so I would do the day the advance I'd go a day ahead of the band and he said how old are you kid 21 and I was 17 I, yeah I'm, seven, I'm 21 yeah so I got to go the first band was the Flying Brewer Brothers you, you don't remember but but it was the best ever and, and so I, I made my chops and then Barry said listen I'm going to do a tour and, and he revolutionized it. The tours in those days went to every city, and it was a different promoter in every city. And he went to the Rolling Stones in 69, and he said, I'll do all the promoting, every city, sell every ticket, do all the security, all you deal with is me. And so that was cool. And so I got to go on the road with the Rolling Stones in 69. And to go on the road with them was like running away with the circus. <laughs> I was a little boy from Denver flying on an airplane, staying in nice hotels, uh, that's shitting in high cotton, you know, and, and, and so it, it was the best, yeah. And so uh, the bands would come to the town, and we would hire the bouncers. And it's not about being tough. It's about being smart. We didn't want bloody mouths. We didn't want lawsuits. We wanted big, gentle people, you know, that if something bad happened, be standing next to my brother John or me. But, but for the most of it, if I just grabbed the kid by the face... <coughs> and said, you're being naughty, they get the picture. Tony Funch is a famous bouncer, famous bouncer, my boss, and Jimmy Callahan, so big and so strong, but so gentle and scary, you know, and grab the kid and lick his face. 
and just so soft and so so inside his personal space and say, listen, stop being naughty. Next time I come and bite your face like an apple. <laughs> and we didn't hit people. We didn't hit people. It wasn't about hitting people. You know, not to hit people, you know. It was about talking to them. 99 out of 100 times, if I could talk to him and say, look, you can have breakfast on the county, you know. And my brother, you know, it was just, I get paid the same whether I fuck you up or not, you know. <clears throat> and it wasn't about being tough. It wasn't about being tough. I didn't know music. I didn't know anything about music, but I could fight. That was all I could do. And so I loved the music, though. I wanted to be close to it. So that was my only way to be close to it. I'd rather sing than eat. Most people would rather hear me eat, you know. <clears throat> But at, so I do the advance and hire the police. But the day of the show, I had the front of the stage with my brother John. And so we would be there. And the lights go off, right? And the bouncers from the town get scared because the kids rush out of their seats. And so the, the kids would come out of their seats. And, and so what would happen is it can't have the wheelchair kids down on the floor because when the lights go out, they get knocked out of the chairs. And you're behind the barricade and you can't help them. And they're getting trampled, okay? And so they put them up high and away. And they put them all together and it stigmatized them. It's not nice, okay? And every show, Jagger would look at me and find me and say, where are they? And I'd say, they're in 323. And you know, how many chairs? 23 chairs. And I'm dating myself, but I would get 23 cassette tapes and 23 T-shirts. And I would give them to him, you know? And we would put a towel over his head or a hood and bring him through the guts of the stadium or wherever we were. And he'd pop up, you know, right then, and take the hood off and run down the chairs and put a, a, a cassette tape and a T-shirt in every kid's lap, you know. And he didn't do it as a photo op or, or to tell somebody. He just did it to be cool, you know. And that's what we can't forget, to be cool every day. And so every time we'd come back, he'd say, he wouldn't stay, he wouldn't stay, you know. He'd, he'd be gone so fast. And, and, you know, one time this little kid's like, the mother came with popcorn and we were just leaving and she goes, Bobby, where'd you get that? Mick Jagger gave it to me, Mama. <laughs> and, oh, bullshit. Who gave you that? <laughs> no, Mick Jagger was just here. But, but he was just there. But every show would walk back and he'd say, Kevin, how come I get to, you get to come with us and thump heads, you know, and, and we pay and you got this big body and I sing and don't really have a voice and get paid. And these people are in chairs. He goes, we can never forget. And uh, can you hear that? You can't forget how lucky you are. Sometimes you get wife and baby duty, which you didn't want. <laughs> you know, as they got older and their wives and children came on the things, you wanted to be with the band and be with the boys, you know. And so you didn't want the wives. In in uh, in 89, I was working. I, I did the Stones, you know. 69, 72, 75, 78, 81, 89, 94, 25 years. And so uh, I worked with the Who. They hired the Rolling Stones bouncers after the trampling. I worked with Elvis. They hired the Rolling Stones bouncers. Willie Nelson, Amy Lou Harris, the P-Funk. Ah, the P-Funk. We jerry-curled our hair. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not like you little fucks. You wear your hair short, but we let it fly, baby. And we didn't wear it in a ponytail, you know. And we'd put feathers in it, you know. That's what I did. That was my thing. Feathers. My hair was black before it was white. And my brother, my brother would wear it like Braveheart, you know, with a chicken bone in it. 
Yeah. Or else to weave a mirror in it. You know, how cool is that? And you're thumping heads and the kid is seeing himself getting thumped. Yeah. So, I got wife and baby duty. And so, the, it's the, and so uh, I, I, that he says, uh, my boss, Jimmy Callen, says, look, the girls, we're in Philadelphia. They say they want to go see Cher's show at Nassau Coliseum. And I don't know how close things are in the east, you know. I, I'm, I don't know. And so we got a Bell jet helicopter. And so he says, take the girls, you know, Joe Wood, Ronnie's wife, and Keith's wife, and, and, and Anita, and Jerry Hall, and her sister, and the nanny, and take them, and they're going to go see Cher's show. So we land. I think, fuck, you know, I got this, this shit. See, fucking share, you know. And so, so we get, we get there, you know. And, and uh, 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 you know, you, you don't want that, you know. But he says, take a pistol. And he says, and if, ever, and if anybody comes and tries to take them, kill everybody and kill yourself. But don't, don't come back and say that they got stolen. So we land at Nassau Coliseum. And Shares Bouncer comes. And he's this handsome, big black kid, big guy, you know. And he goes, who are you? And I say, I'm Kevin Fitzgerald from the Rolling Stones, and I brought my lady to see your lady. And he goes, bullshit. You know, get back in the helicopter. How do I know you're who you say you are? Well, who has a jet helicopter? You know, the president at the time, you know, and, and the pope, and, you know, the Rolling Stones, you know. And he says, get back in the helicopter, I'm going to fuck you up. But he can't fuck me up, because that's what I do for a living. So I hit him. But I, I hit him cool. We would carry a sap, you know, but you can't hit him with that. You can't hit him with that. But so what you do is you tape it into your arm and you hit him in the side of the neck with it and take his head into the side of the helicopter. And then you get your ladies and step over him. And then his, his boss ran over and said, that's why he's the Rolling Stones bouncer. And you're a shares bouncer. Your next storyteller, uh, she's a teacher at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and she used to be the music editor for Westward. This is her first time debuting on the show. Please welcome Laura Bond. I spent the final dregs of a sixth grade summer in my brother's room, perched on the perimeter of his waterbed, forced to listen to weird British music he was discovering daily. The Smiths, the the, soft cell. I hated most of it until one night when he played a record called Speak and Spell by Depeche Mode. I liked the singer's voice and the melodies were bright and catchy. We listened to it twice and I felt for first ti- the first time that lilting hope that accompanies the discovery of good new music. Around that time, I met Kristen Day, who'd emerged over the summer as a stone fox. Kristen's father had died when she was six, and maybe this experience, absorbed so young, infused her with rare depth. Whatever it was that combined in the slender, dark beauty of that 12-year-old girl, she was magic. We spent whispery, giggly nights together. When she came along on a family road trip, we laughed all the way from Phoenix to California and back. She thought every single thing I said was funny, compelled in me and amplified an exaggerated version of the very best of my nature. And she had cable. (laughs) During one of our first sleepovers, she asked, had I seen Depeche Mode? 
She produced this strange love video recorded off of MTV. It was all grainy, black and white. The lead singer wore white jeans, and he had this move. There was something in it that was calibrated to our hatching hormones, our ripening glands. We didn't know what strange love was. We just wanted it. We studied the band with a rigor that did not extend to our actual studies, saw a direct divine line connecting their lives to our own. When we learned that singer Dave Gone liked mushroom pizza, we never ate anything else ever again. We ate mushroom pizza and watched MTV, and when DM came on, we wiggled. We transferred all of our crushes for actual boys to the musicians who pained and delighted us, as all crushes do. So secure was I in our special bond, in my special bond with Kristen that I didn't even notice when Marcy Bettini changed schools, opening a seat at the right side of Nikki Theodoropoulos, who had appeared one fifth grade day, petite, hilarious, gymnastic, a preteen Venus de Milo. She might as well have glided up on a clam show. She and Marcy, a cute, ballsy Italian, soon formed a power duo unrivaled in the social history of Madison Meadows School. But Marcy's sudden departure had left Nikki available and alone. And there was Kristen with her glow. Soon came a sleepover at Carrie Keats' house and bonding over movies and Saturday Night Live skits. Kristen laughed at Nikki's jokes, maybe even harder than at mine. I'd brought along a primo item, a script, to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure that my brother had scored through his small speaking role in the film. But Nikki cast herself as Bill and Kristen as Ted, and they read the entire movie aloud twice. I was Napoleon. (laughs) Kristen didn't even look at me as she popped a tape into the VCR, and behind the wheel, one of our favorite videos came on. There was this metallic rattle and that driving bass line, then Dave's deep voice. Nikki's eyes sparkled, and suddenly it was mushroom pizza for all. Inside of a month, we learned every word and note of every album. We memorized every video, which we acted out mornings before school. And then things got real. Every inch of our rooms was covered with photos ripped out of magazines. It looks like the latter scenes of Grey Gardens. We petitioned to change our school song to People Are People. We warred with a powerful faction of girls who not only did not love DM, but pledged loyalty to their arch-rival, Guns N' Roses, whose slithery leader, Asshole Rose, has, had once called our beloved Depeche a bunch of faggots. Yes, Martin enjoyed wearing leather skirts, but he was more manly than all of the boys in our schools combined, the boys we now refuse to dance with at middle school mixers for fear of disloyalty. There was only one place our love could lead, and that was to marriage before God. Never mind the divides of distance, age, space, or time. It had to be holy matrimony. But first we had to decide who was going to marry who. Kristen was the most genuinely smitten in absolute preteen love with Dave Gone. With her wisdom and her effortlessness and her blue-black hair, she just was his woman. I still kind of hope they'll get together. <laughs> Nikki's tufty white blonde hair and bright blue eyes evoked Martin Gore's entire spirit as if she'd been plucked from his very rib. And though I loved Martin, Nikki was Mrs. Gore. So I claimed keyboardist Alan Wilder, clearly the better remaining catch. And I did like him. He was handsome and cerebral and discerning. 
Carrie did her best to muster a wifely appetite for the gangly and pallid Andy Fletcher, who was kind of like the band's accountant, but who looked okay in a leather jacket and seemed sweet and reliable. A, A girl could do worse. Before marriage, though, we had to meet the band, and making this happen became my life's mission because I loved Alan. And because when I closed my eyes, I pictured Martin and Nikki and Kristen and Dave flying to a European honeymoon on a private jet, leaving me behind with my B-level betrothed. (laughs) Revealed as the mastermind of our fate, I would earn my seat on that plane forever. I had a phone in my room and a bunch of British magazines. I just started calling businesses listed in the classifieds, and soon I I learned how to call information in London and Basildon, where the band members grew up and still lived, and to us was more mythic than Brigadoon. I I started to find people in places I'd read about in the canon of Depeche Mode literature. I memorized the country code to England and the time differences. There were occasional mistakes, like the time I called Swaziland. But there were also victories, like when I got a secretary at Martin's primary school to release his records. Another time I convinced Scotland Yard to make a well-being visit to Dave's house. But still, we were no closer to matrimony. I needed a plan, and one day, leafing through Spin Magazine, one emerged in my mind, completely intact, like an angelic visitation. I would write an article about DM for Spin Magazine, and why not? Renewed by purpose, I called every place listed in liner notes of every Depeche Mode recording ever made. Studios, manufacturers, distributors. I looked up engineers, producers, people thanked in the credits, some of whom were dead. Hello, I'm with Spin Magazine, and I'd like to interview Depeche Mode. Finally, miraculously, I found myself on the line with Tamsin Lee, director of publicity at Sire Records in New York, and she had all kinds of questions like, what would my angle be, and what was the art, and what would the spread be? It's about the band's new movie, I said, and there will be photographs. (laughs) She did not ask for clips or references. Instead, she told me to expect a call from Andy Fletcher in three days. This news propelled my friends to an unprecedented level of hysteria. Soon, (laughs) every single person we had ever met knew what was going to go down. But I got to work. Um, Tamsin had said management would be in touch, so I left strict instructions for my family to answer the phone as if they were in a busy office, my office. My mom, bless her, bought me a two-way telephone recorder, and my dad helped me brainstorm questions. Andy Fletcher called my house at 11.03 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. I took the call in my parents' room at a special station I'd constructed and tested five or six hundred times. Nikki and Kristen were on the speakerphone in my dad's office, commanded to keep the phone on mute. Forgive my accent. I actually do a pretty decent British, but I don't think it's going to go down that way. Hi, this is Andy Fletcher. Am I speaking to Laura Bond? Somehow I was calm. I asked about the movie, and Andy responded. He compared it to Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense, and I emoted knowingly. I was pretty sure my brother had seen it. Somehow an interview was underway. I monitored my body for wayward emissions. For some reason, I I began to speak in a British accent. (laughs) 
But I was doing okay, and Andy and I were even sort of riffing. But I could sense something bubbling up from my father's office. The speakerphone was live. Nikki and Kristen's breathing got shorter and faster, and there came a great giggle, then a scream. Andy! Andy, we love you! What? What's going on? We told him everything about the mushroom pizza and our war with Guns N' Roses and our wedding plans. Andy, we put on your videos and we act them out, every single one. We have fantasized about being your toilet paper. I never did that. To his eternal credit, Andy Fletcher was a sport and a gentleman. Which one's married to Martin? I hope you're blonde. And then he said, listen, girls, right now you love us, but in two years you'll be like, Depeche who? What? Never, we cried. Before we hung up, Andy said the interview was better than the last one he did for spin. (laughs) That guy took us to Central Park and said, what do you think of that tree? (laughs) At least this was fun. The next call was from Tam Sinley, the publicist at Sire, who demanded to speak to my mother and threaten her with a lawsuit unless I announced over the loudspeaker at school that I had made it all up. But my mother responded coolly that she couldn't have been more proud. The next year, I pulled off another scheme. You can see me after if you'd like details about the time I got tickets to the premiere of 101 and my dad flew with us to L.A. where we watched the film in a star-studded theater, Asshole Rose, right behind us. And later, we intercepted Andy in the lobby of of the hotel, and he stopped for a photograph, bemused and obliging, Nikki and Kristen on his left and me on the right. The plane ride home was quiet, We were in eighth grade now and soon headed for high school. Me at the big public downtown and Nikki and Kristen at the college prep a mile away. When high school did come and I saw them at parties, we did not call each other by our married names. (laughs) For the record, I am not married to Alan Wilder. But I carried a love for him into freshman year when I noticed a tall, stylish boy across the quad. I swear to God, the splitting image of a young Alan... His name was Paul, and he became my first love for two sweet, thrilling years. Later, after moving on a penniless whim to London, a city I discovered in DM pictorials, I interned at a famous Fleet Street newspaper, and a few years after that, had my first byline on the cover of a real magazine. So, I don't know, maybe it was fate. I'm still immobilized whenever a Depeche Mode song catches me off guard, and every couple of years I have a Depeche Fest, which involves playing records and weeping in my kitchen. (laughs) Transported to the desperation and longing of adolescence, life's first major transformation. Of all of the transformations that have followed since, that one soundtrack was by far the best. Thank you. The Narrators Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrators Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. 
The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl. Or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.